Tennessee Court Talk is a podcast presented by the Tennessee Supreme Court, Administrative Office of the Court. The aim of the podcast is to improve the administration of justice in state courts through education and understanding. The target audience varies and is announced in the beginning of each episode. Welcome to Tennessee Court Talk. I'm your host, Barbara Peck. Today we are talking about juvenile courts in Tennessee, and this podcast is intended for all audiences. Our first guest is Judge Vicki Schneider. She is a juvenile court judge in Henry County. Our second guest is Judge Dan Michael. He's a juvenile court judge in Shelby County. Our third guest is Judge Tim Irwin, a juvenile court judge in Knox County. And our final guest is Judge Christy Little. She is a juvenile judge in Madison County. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So all 95 counties in Tennessee have a juvenile court. Juvenile courts are part of our county court system. And so overall, Judge Michael, what is the mission of juvenile courts in Tennessee? It's according to what part of the juvenile court you're talking about, of course. In uh, juvenile justice, it's rehabilitation. Uh, In cases of dependency and neglect, it's what's in the best interest of the child, trying to help families reunite. Uh, get families back together or get children in a permanent placement. So it varies from docket to docket on what our actual goals are. I don't know if anybody disagrees with that, but I think I... I think a common misconception is people think that we are here to do the same thing as what happens to uh, children in adult court. We are bound by the statute that says we rehabilitate children if the the only way they would be punished is if they're transferred from our courts so people get frustrated sometimes with the juvenile court system because they feel like we're not doing enough Um, but we rehabilitate and the adult system punishes and that's very important and in madison county i think the biggest thing that i worry about is that we keep our families and children safe, but we also keep our community safe, and that balancing act is, is very, very difficult sometimes, especially in those sensitive cases. So let's talk a little bit about delin- delinquency. And um, so what kind of rehabilitation efforts do you have available to you, and J- Judge Schneider? Well, I'm in a rural county, so um, my resources are limited compared to suburban and uh, urban areas. Um, I have a I'm lucky I have Cary Counseling Center, uh, which is uh, available to us through um, through the Juvenile Justice Reform Act. There's a grant that makes um, Cary Counseling available to us. They're in court with us every time we have court, whether it's child um, welfare court or juvenile justice court. Um, and they are available to meet the needs of the children that need a rehabilitation. Also, the Department of Children's Services is available to us to meet those needs as well. Um, I do not have grants. I don't, I don't um, really use grants for juvenile justice cases because I am a rural county. Um, it's difficult to hire people uh, under that grant in that, in that area and someone to move to Henry County or take a job under a grant program through juvenile justice and then that grant um, dissipate or go away. That person perhaps has moved to Henry County, bought a house there, and if the grant um, ends for whatever purpose, you know, let's say it's a, through a federal grant, that grant um, is no longer available through the state. That person then is in Henry County where there aren't a lot of jobs, and then that person is there with a house and perhaps no job. So I use a lot of um, creative uh, programs that we use in Henry County that are uh, at no cost. 
such as uh, what's called an options program where kids um, actually it's an out of detention detention weekend program that uh, my part-time staff um, oversees and supervises. So rehabilitation, community service, uh, treatment for A&D issues, and those kinds of things. I have to be creative because I'm rural and don't have a lot of resources. So Judge Irwin, tell me a little bit about what options you have for defendants who are delinquent or unruly. Well, first of all, let me say that's way less than 10% of what I do are the delinquent and unruly children, but we have a plethora of uh, options. We have a program called Home Base, a very intensive form of probation run by the Helen Ross McNabb folks. Uh, we have a show cap designation, which um, makes an officer come by your house at night, check, see if you're in for your curfew. Uh, those two things help us keep from placing kids in juvenile justice commitments. Uh, we've also got a fully uh, licensed PhD clinical social worker on staff that can meet with our children in detention and she has six master's level students so we can address mental health needs uh, quickly for kids that have to wait in detention to have their cases heard because of safety concerns and uh, we also have a big presence with the department I have about I think I have 46 employees there in a county of 400,000, so we have adequate resources. Uh, what we don't have sometimes is placement beds as quickly as we'd like them if we do have to commit a child. I have 707 children in DCS custody, and only 26 of those children are in juvenile justice custody, so 680 on the dependence and neglect side and 26 on the juvenile justice side. So it's not a big part of what I do, but we have adequate resources right now to handle and help keep kids from going down the custody road when possible, when safety allows. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that the misconception is that juvenile court really is handing juvenile justice issues, like kids are being sent to juvenile. I think that's what the public or a lot of people would think that you do, but as you're all shaking your head yes to me, that that's really a small part of what you're actually doing. So tell us a little bit about your docket, a typical docket for you, Judge Michael. Well, the, the um, in Shelby County, we have a resurgence of violent juvenile crime. It's up about 65% over last year, uh, which has caused my docket to crowd up with transfer hearings. Um, my docket is solely set to hear transfer cases. Our DA files about 250 notices a year, which causes me to give her a hearing on those cases. Um, so I spend my day managing those 250 filings, getting reports, getting psychological evaluations done, getting everything ready to go for a hearing. Um, it's, it's unusual. You know, Shelby County is the poorest urban county in the state. We have the highest number of single-family households. We have the highest number of households on government assistance. So poverty, one of those correlating factors to crime, is huge. About 40% of our children in Shelby County live in poverty. And um, when you have those types of infrastructure problems, lack of shopping centers and grocery stores in the inner city, um, and gangs, uh, you have a crime problem. So my, my daily docket is looking at young adults coming in who are committing very serious offenses. We get about 6,000 delinquency referrals a year in Shelby County. Um, 
that's still not the majority of our business. The majority of our business in Shelby County is child support work. It's over half our docket. Um, and then we'll get another three to 4,000 abused and neglected children coming through our courts every year. So tell us a little bit about the differences between unruly and delinquent. Well, an unruly child or a status offender is um, uh, an act that can only be committed by a child. Uh, the, the five or six of us could run away today and nobody's going to arrest us or smoke a cigarette or drink alcohol or disobey our parents. Uh, children aren't allowed to do that, and that's an unruly act or a status offender. A delinquent act is an act which would be a crime if you were an adult. And that language is used purposefully. We don't want to label children criminals. If you read the statute, it still has that old language in it. We want to remove the taint of criminality um, from the child so that they can grow up and be productive citizens without that delinquent act chasing them through adulthood. And so I, I'm going to stay with you for a minute here. So what? Um, tell us a little bit about how you decide and what factors you look at when you're deciding whether to remove a child from juvenile court to adult court. It's, um, it's pretty straightforward. Um, there are three primary uh, laws that you have to look at in the transfer statute. One, probable cause that the child committed the act they're charged with. So I have to find it's reasonable to believe that the child committed the act. The second one is what I call committability. Um, is that child committable to an institution for the developmentally disabled or mentally ill? And if they are, it stops the proceedings. If they fail to prove probable cause, the proceedings stop. Last but not least, what the TCA says, Tennessee Code Annotated, uh, community requires legal restraint and discipline. This is where the legislature hands off that uh, crystal ball, I guess you'd say, to the judge. We have to look at that child's history, how they've responded in the past to treatment efforts if they've been in court. What have we done to try to help them? How many systems have they been through? Um, and you consider all those factors in making a decision on whether you believe the child can be rehabilitated. If you get to the point where a child has been in the system a long time, has graduated through all of our local service providers on into the Department of Children's Services, and is still committing violent acts, then you get to a point where you say, I'm sorry, but I, I don't have anything for you. You have to go to the adult system. It's a very, very difficult decision to make because you're essentially giving up on that child's potential. And Tim, I would say the two most difficult cases as a juvenile judge that, and, uh, that we have to determine, and I think all of us will agree, um, that I lose sleep over at night, even though all the factors are met and you feel that transfer is the, is the um, only option. The two most are transferring a child to adult court. Those are the days you wake up in, in dread and fear. And the second is terminating a parent's rights to be a parent. And it's almost an, an awesome response. I mean, that we even have the ability to say you are no longer a parent to a child in a, in a case um, it's very, very difficult um, to do that. Judge Irwin was very, very successful in getting some new surrender forms that have made it so much easier for a parent who, who feels they can't adequately, for, for many reasons, parent a child. And if a parent comes in and decides to surrender on a day when I would have to make that determination whether or not to terminate, um, 
it's a win for everyone. And now with the new legislation that allows parents to contract with the uh, adoptive families, it also is, a, is another piece to that puzzle that makes me feel um, at night that a uh, job well done uh, for my staff um, and that everybody's done their job. But those are the two things that, as a judge, I think all of us would agree are the most difficult transfers and terminations. I agree with that because some sometimes when a parent um, surrenders um, a, their rights and we go through the process, which we're dictated to um, go through, um, you know, I, I will say to the ch- to the parent because it's generally a parent I've dealt with in in the dependency and neglect court at usually on in an earlier case. Mm-hmm. When I'm satisfied that um, that parent is doing so under no duress or coercion, this is something they wish to do because they want their child to have a better life. And when we are finished and the crying has ceased. Um, you know, I will say to that parent, this is the greatest act of love you will ever demonstrate for this child. And then the conversation is, I recognize that, and I want my child to have the life that I never had. Because usually that parent is a product of the environment that their child has been living in, which is usually, um, you know, domestic violence, drug addiction, poverty, homelessness, and they want better for their child. And so the fact that Judge Irwin championed the cause of having a surrender form that was less cumbersome, and we have that now, uh, makes that process so much less difficult and less um, painful that, for that parent that wants to surrender. And as an adoptive parent, and I'm an adoptive parent, you know, it, it, I, can, I can honestly say to them what you're doing is, is the most... Un- it's, it's the most difficult decision. If they don't cry and they're not upset, it, it, it's heartbreaking to me because it is such a wonderful gift for a family to be able to have a child they can love, but it's also the most unselfish thing you can do to say, I just know that I, in my heart of hearts that this is the best thing. And it's not just the women. It's also the fathers as well who come in and say, you know, I... I just simply cannot do this and I and and you know those are the days when you go home and you kind of have a little zip in your step once you finally get past like the, the tears as Vic as, as Judge Stunner said once you get past that to know that um you want to know the outcome of that and the Christmas cards that you get that that's why it's easier to get up some days and do the jobs that we do so Judge Irwin this form you uh, helped create? The magic form. The magic form. Tell us a little bit about what you were seeing and what was the motivation there. Well, I uh, was dealing with a case that was the surrender was actually taken down in uh, uh, Panama City. And I got the surrender, and it was one page. And our surrender at the time was about, I don't know, 60 pages maybe. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so we took a look at what we could do to shorten it, and we tried all kinds of different ways to shorten it through committee with the Department of Children's Services. Finally, it just took a simple statute change, put the new form in there, and now this legislature, they're changing it to make it even shorter. Uh, but I think that's a good thing. People understand 
that they're giving up their rights. That's the main point. And they understand that it's forever. And they understand they got three days to change your mind. And that's a really good thing. A lot of times when I go to work every day and I come home at night, I've made a child's life better by my direct actions. And that's what keeps you going. Uh, when you have days where you have to, you know, where you have to bind a child over to the grand jury to be tried as an adult, those are hard. And, you know, I feel for Dan having to do so many of them. I think the more vigilant you are on the dependence and neglect side, the less cases you'll have to have on the transfer side. Uh, if you raise a child correctly, if he has someone in his life or she has someone in her life that loves them, if they're not uh, had a bunch of trauma and adverse uh, childhood experiences and they grow up with someone caring about them and going to school, they're not likely to end up in front of us with the state asking for a transfer. If they're raised like an animal, then they'll respond like an animal. You tell the child they're bad, they'll prove you right every time. Absolutely. And they learn by example. You know. If you're vigilant and you have the ability to take children out of the bad home situations early in their life, they turn around. There was this huge, huge scare when the opiate crisis hit about how are these children that are born drug exposed, uh, what kind of effect is it going to have on them when they're older children and teenagers and, and so far honestly I have to say that effect's been uh, much less than we thought it was going to be I see kids going to foster homes very quickly and they're they're becoming part of those homes and living good lives and I haven't seen too many emotionally disturbed children because of what happened to them in the womb and I'm so thankful for that we were really scared yep when the opiate crisis hit, what was going to happen? And I, I see one once in a while, but not not very often. Don't you think that the safe baby court concept has also made that better? I think that Absolutely. Uh, it's been a phenomenal effort to keep children with their mothers. The hardest thing we have to do is tear a child away from its parents. That's yep. very difficult. Whether you're terminating, whether you're taking them away the first time, you take away a baby from a mom that's just had that child. That's That's rough on you. It's rough on you, it's rough on them, it's hard on the child. To sever that bond between a, a newborn and its mother is... If they don't bond initially, it's very, very difficult. And we have a program in um, Madison County, actually in Gibbs, it's, it's in Gibson County in Humboldt, run by Aspel, called A Mother's Love, where we take the, the women when, they are in, when they're pregnant and have opioid issues and try to get them off those drugs. And then after the baby's born, they stay with their child in that facility for six months minimum, most of the time longer. And we have found great success in that program, Pathways. And um, all these other agencies come in and work closely with the parents with ASPL. And, and it has just been amazing. I think, Tim, uh, Judge Irwin, you've had some mothers with us and, and, and uh, Judge Snyder as well. We just hadn't had any um, – Memphis has Baby Love and some other programs. But keeping those children and mothers together when they're first born is a bond that if you don't get on the front end, you don't get on uh, – you, you, it's hard. It's a detachment disorder issue. And um, so 
I think that was something we were concerned about is what are we going to do to keep that together with that and safe baby court that um, Senator Hale was able to legislate. And I think everybody um, in here, with the exception of Shelby, has a safe baby court now. But the goal is to have every county in the state to have that program that we could talk the whole time uh, as as far as Barbara about that program. But um, we continue to... Um, proceed with um, the concept that uh, prevention before detention, getting the children when they're young, keeps them out of the court system when they're older, because the, st the statistics tell us that that overwhelmingly, and y'all may know the exact number, I would say 90 plus percent of the children that are delinquent were dependent, neglected. Now, whether they w that was identified or not, and remains to be seen, but our goal is to keep them from getting to that to that uh, juvenile justice track and keep them um, safe and um, happy and healthy before they start committing offenses that that um, change their lives forever. One of the things that's coming uh, down the pike um, that I think is going to really help us with these uh, cases, these uh, welfare cases, is Family First Prevention Act was passed by Congress, allowing the states to draw down uh, what we call 4D money from Title 4D of Social Security Act and use it in different ways. And as a judge, when I'm told that mother goes to the med and has a baby that has cocaine in the bloodstream, well, today the department's going to go in and remove that child. After Families First comes on board, they will be able to place that mother in a residential provider facility with the child and help her get past her addiction. And what I like about the act and the training I've gotten on the act so far is that it acknowledges that mother will probably fail at some point in time during that treatment. Almost all addicts do, but that's not going to be held against them. And the really exciting thing is it's 15 months of treatment. That's a long time, not 30 days, not 90 days, 15 months. With that, I think what we're going to see are fewer and fewer families coming before us where we have to remove the children if it works the way it's supposed to. Now, Tennessee took a waiver, so I think it's 2022 before they launch it. But they are doing training around the state on families first. So I'm looking forward to the application of that system in Tennessee. So tell me a little bit about, Judge Snyder, tell me a little bit about the dependency neglect cases that you see in um, Henry County. Almost uh, ex almost exclusively, they are, the genesis of the, the DNN cases are parent drug uh, abuse or drug dependency. <clears throat> Very often, um, there are multiple children involved with the department removing, uh, usually when law enforcement officers um, go into a home on a search warrant or um, after investigating something and then law enforcement calling the department and the department then going into the home and removing uh, more a child or more children um, involves generally more than one father, uh, which involves the appointment of a guardian ad litem, uh, attorneys for, and most all parents are indigent, which involves the appointment of counsel for mother or the guardian ad litem, uh, father or fathers. 
first and foremost addressing uh, the specific needs of the child or the children, whether they uh, need to be tested for drug exposure, their specific medical needs. If they're older children, they generally have not had dental care. They haven't seen a physician, a pediatrician in some time. They may have, um, they may have abuse issues. They need to see a pediatrician immediately and making sure they're safe, they're in a safe environment, generally with a kinship placement if there is one available where they'll be safe because children need to be with someone that's not a stranger to them. It's so scary to, to just imagine um, these children are in the home. They may not see it as a dangerous situation. They love their parents, even though it is, we see it as a bad situation, quote. But the police come in. It's scary. They're removed by people that are strangers to them. Then they're placed in a strange home. It is frightening. It's traumatic. Every child, if they're old enough to talk, will tell you during the process that they just want to go home, no matter how bad home is. What's happened to them, they'll all tell you they want to go home. I don't think I've ever had a child not want to go home. So if there's kinship placement, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, where they can be safe, that is where we like to see them go. And then just providing the services with the return to parent, if it's appropriate, if the Department Department of Children's Services develops that plan, everyone's on board. If they can go home and it's a safe environment, reunification. If not, kinship placement down the road. If termination is appropriate for children, you know, you have to follow that plan. Uh, it's, it's not cookie cutter, as I said, different for every case, right. different for every child. Um, and we have to be in tune with that as judges, have to be attentive, have to hold the feet, the feet of the department to the fire, the attorneys, and ourselves. We are accountable as well as judges. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into every case by all parties involved. And if I can just say the other piece of that puzzle is that a lot of the placements are non-custodial, and we're uh, fortunate in, in Madison County to have CASA. We do too. And, and, and that's another piece of that puzzle because they, if there's a relative in uh, Nevada, then we, have a, we can contact CASA in Nevada and get them to do a, a, a home study that would be a whole lot uh, we can expedite what Department of Children's Services would have to do, and um, we're able to place children. So CASA has been a wonderful benefit um, that we've had for, for years that allows us to be able to also get into the home, see what, uh, you know, to be the voice of the child, which, as we've said, um, is to return home, but we want them to, to make certain. I think my two greatest fears are that, I return a child too soon when a parent's not ready, and then that's even more devastating to have to remove, or that I don't return them soon enough, and it is, uh, it's difficult then for that bonding to occur or things are already um, so difficult or different at that point in time. So CASA is also another piece of that uh, dependency and neglect issue when you have to remove children. And in Madison County, we're seeing uh, many... Uh, more parents with the mental or or maybe they're just becoming uh we're becoming more aware of the mental health issues and nine times out of ten a parent who has a drug issue had a mental health issue and they self-medicate and we work closely with our mental health provider pathways um we have quinco and some and other providers that are there but 
mental health has been coming to the forefront lately um, with um, more people not getting the services they need and not being able to parent because of that. And it's a fix because certainly there's medication and there are things we can do, but that's also another piece of that dependency and neglect puzzle that we see besides the drug issues, as Judge Schneider said, that's probably is the number one reason why most children are taken every, you know, we have physical abuse that does occur, but um, for the most part, it is, um, it leans toward the the use of drugs or the lack of mental health treatment. So Judge Irwin, when you're making the decision, when there's a family in front of you and you've sort of made the decision to, that the child can't stay in the home, what factors are you looking for when you're trying to decide where to place them? Number one, safety. None of us want a dead baby or a dead child. So safety, it's not safe for the child to stay in the home of an active meth addict oftentimes. And I say meth because that's 90% of what I see is meth, cocaine. I don't see many pills anymore. Right. And I had a tremendous pill-using population, but the medical Folks have done a good job of cleaning up their practices. I don't see it. My people can't get pills anymore. They use meth and they use cocaine, and and it's been my determination and that of my magistrates that they're not safe options while they're active users. So safety is the first determination. And uh, we do look at what the child wants when they get to be a certain age. When they're 12, they can testify, and... uh, and we listen to the children and try to put them at ease. I'm a big, scary guy, so I, the first thing I do in my court is hand children a teddy bear and let them hold it and squeeze it. Not all teddy bears, stuffed animals, you know, everything from Barney to unicorns. to, But uh, uh, it seems to work really well putting the kids at ease. But the first thing that uh, I look at is going to be safety, and that's always going to be the case. The second thing I'm going to look at, is the best interest of this child and where I can get this child where they'll grow and flourish and and have a successful life. And that can be a whole lot, the considerations can be a whole lot different with a six-day-old and a 17-year-old. And you have to look at, 17-year-old, you have to look at things like, how can I possibly get this child with a high school diploma or in a vocation or uh, get them in a place where they can can succeed and want to succeed you're in a more of a rehabilitation stage there where with a baby you're wanting to get them in a place where they can get all this care on time growing up so you won't be that 17 year old with three high school credits and then a bunch of trouble we also have if i can just say a pitch we have navi who is our new um, security dog who comes to court every time we have any removals and I know you have uh, habit uh, habit dogs is what we have. Yeah, they come in too. And it and Navi has been uh, probably the greatest addition we've had in a long time. No offense to all my wonderful Amy Jones and my uh, director of juvenile court services staff, but everybody wants to see Navi. They don't want to see me, and they don't want to see uh, people. They want to just get down on the floor and and talk to Navi and deal with um, you know. The dog listens. It's kind of like my dog when I go home. Sometimes my animals are the only ones that are glad to see me. So Navi brings that different element children relate 
to that. So that's something that all courts, I think, uh, in the in the state should look into because it has been a really blessed um, opportunity that we've had, and to see how that affects children as well, as uh, Judge Irwin said, um, especially those the children that are not the newborns, um, but any any child that um, is available is, is, is has the ability to 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 rub a dog or have a, a stuffed animal has a has feels like they have um something of their very own or something special that's not judging them in any way whatsoever about 10 years ago i sat on a panel at freed hardeman um which addressed the issue of aging out of foster care mm. you know being 18 never been adopted and there were six kids on the on the pan the on the stage and when they finished speaking, um, I asked them, you know, as a judge, tell me what I need to know about you. Tell me, tell me the main thing that I need to know about you and what I can do as a judge to help the kids that come before me. And they said, nobody ever heard us. Nobody ever Never heard me. And so I left there and drove back from Henderson to Paris, and I was so overwhelmed with emotion. And I started immediately, especially kids that were old enough to understand, and I said, I want you to understand that with the dependency and neglect kids, that you're in state custody, or you're in foster care, not because of anything that you did. You did nothing wrong. You're here because of parent behavior. And I want you to understand, I'm always here to listen to you. You have a voice. You are the most important person in this room. And I began to see a change in these children when they would come to court. They stood taller, and they had a command of the courtroom. And we started using therapy dogs about eight years ago. And we had one. Tanner was a golden retriever. He died of cancer, and we were all devastated. And now we have two. And the children come in, and they first... And you can hear the tail of the dog hit the courtroom floor, and it's like bam, bam, bam. And they come in, and they immediately go to the dog. And we know we have a ratification of the permanency plan. And the children will go over and pet the dog, and then they get a sucker, and then they leave the courtroom. Because when we talk about then the, the court report, I don't want the little ears to hear some things that we're talking about. So to alleviate their fear of being in this scary courtroom, they're, I'm up on a bench. They're down there. You know, sometimes I get off the bench and come around and kneel down and talk to them because they're, they're so tiny sometimes. Mm. And I think about my five grandchildren, you know, when I'm talking to them, I kneel down and get at eye level because they live in a world of big people, and they're little people. And then when my kids that come in are 16 and 17, as Judge Irwin talked about, and they are getting ready to be of the, at the age of aging out, and they th- and you, you think about these kids, these kids at Freed Hardeman and that, on that panel talked about, you know, when I turned 18, my foster parents said, you still live here. This will be your home forever. You can, you, no matter what you do, you come back here and right. this is your home. Some had their suitcase put on the front door step, at the front door, adios. So at Thanksgiving, they were in a McDonald's and they, that was their Thanksgiving. Some lived in their car. I was heartbroken by that concept and that thought. So when we have that, um, the, the transition of that 17-year-old learning about permanency and how you can 
know how to get a credit card and uh, fill out an application for uh, an apartment or do those things that parents that we did for our children they don't have anybody doing that for them so we're not we're not only dealing with the abused and neglected little ones we're dealing with those 17 year olds that are getting ready to turn 18 and don't belong to anyone and everybody needs to be somebody someone these are children that need us yeah i'd like to stress a point i think tim made earlier um i've never well i've seen maybe a half a dozen kids over the years but i rarely see a child on my transfer docket whose background is horrendous i mean i have read files on children who are 15 16 17 who have done something really really bad and I've wondered to myself how that child survived that life. I rarely see a child turn 16 or 17, pick up a gun, and go rob somebody. These are children who are abused, neglected to the point that the trauma in their life drives their life. You see fighting at school. You see fighting at home. A good friend of mine says it this way. You know, we have an amygdala which controls the fight or flight in our bodies and if you're in the woods and a bear walks up on you you're either going to fight or you're going to flee hopefully you're going to be faster than the bear (laughs) what do you do when the bear is at home every day all day with you and these children are coming up in situations and that's what I see on my transfer docket now it doesn't forgive their behavior but it tells me why they're there that's why this DNN or this abuse welfare side is so critical to what we do if we can get those children safe in a home that's going to love them and give them the direction they need i'll never see them i mean it's it's that that close to what i'm dealing with on my end and people forget that interesting i think someone made that point yesterday at at one of the sessions that there's such a fine line between the dependency and neglect cases and the, and the delinquent cases sometimes they're just so mixed oh you can have a delinquent child that's also dependent and neglected we run into that all the time yeah Constantly. absolutely yeah so let's talk a little bit about you mentioned a little bit judge schneider about who's in the courtroom in a juvenile proceeding and i think one of the misconceptions we have is the administrative office of the courts we, we manage the indigent fund for when somebody can't afford an attorney then they're appointed an attorney if the public defender can't represent them. And it's about a $43 million fund um, that the administrative office of the courts administers. So I think there's a lot of misconception that that is all going to capital cases and and these people who have done these horrendous crimes. But the reality is 43% of that money is going into juvenile court. And so tell us a little bit about who who gets a lawyer in in juvenile court and what is the role of the guardian ad litems? Because that's something that's sort of fairly unique to juvenile court it happens a little bit on other courts but definitely in juvenile court in madison county everybody gets a lawyer in in a dependency and neglect case where the child gets a guardian ad litem the parents mother father as long as they're indigent which i'd say 98 percent of the the families are indigent um casa we we don't go forward obviously in a termination of parental rights case everybody will but in in madison county our goal is for every every child you get a sibling group and that's where i get uh frustrated sometimes you get a sibling group of six children 
that maybe have different fathers, that you have older children who have different interests than babies. And sadly, we may have one guardian ad litem and CASA. Our goal, the goal for our CASA board is for every child to have a CASA representative. And usually I will take, if it's a smaller group, I'll at least point a two, a two guardian ad litems, and we're blessed to, to be able to do that in our county and have attorneys that are willing to do that. They don't get paid enough, even though they are getting paid not nearly what they should be for the time they spend. But um, the children have different differing needs. Now, also, if a child says, I want to go home, and it's just absolutely impossible because there's still a meth issue, we still have meth in the home, then sometimes we have to appoint attorney ad litems in, in some cases. But... Um, we always make certain that the children and the parents' rights are protected because these cases, especially if it's a termination, are going up on appeal, and and rightly so. We should, you know, we, that's a decision that, that needs to be looked at. We're all human. Certainly those things need to be, be um, tested and tested to make certain if, if in fact, um, there is a termination of parental rights. So everyone... Um, should in those cases have an attorney and also in the delinquency cases uh, sometimes we may assess an amount less than what um, you know an amount for the parents to pay um, if the child uh, every child has to have an attorney they, they have the same right so in a delinquency case it's just as important because every time they commit an offense that could be used against them later in a transfer hearing to show their past um, treatment efforts, and their past delinquent history. So um, lawyers play such an important role in our courts that we don't give them the credit they deserve, and certainly the monetary amount, but we appreciate the, the AOC's efforts in making certain that um, we do have attorneys readily available. And our public defender does not have the manpower to come to our court, so all of ours... Uh, all the all the attorneys that come to court are being paid through the AOC unless they're um, the families are able to hire counsel. I do appoint the public defender in uh, juvenile court. Um, if um, there's a, I, I make uh, parents fill out affidavits in delinquency cases, and if the public defender uh, is if they qualify, I appoint the public defender. Now, if there's a brutal issue in their co-defendants, then I appoint private counsel. Um, we do have a day that the public defender comes. There's always that misconception in private custody cases where um, the petitioner always generally has an attorney, and then the respondent will come in and say, I want an attorney. Well, if there is dependency and neglect alleged in the petition and the respondent fills out an affidavit and they qualify, I will appoint counsel. But if there's no allegation of dependency and neglect and it's strictly just a custody issue, you know, parental fitness. I don't, that there's no uh, ground for me, there's absolutely no ground for me to appoint counsel. And, I, and I, it is a difficult thing for me because I recognize very often, because I live in a county of 33,000, which sounds big, but it's not. <laughs> and sometimes I'll know just by just recognizing the person, sometimes having been in criminal court, the respondent is not, able to hire a counsel and I'll explain to them I don't have the ability to appoint counsel for you and sadly Vicki what do you do uh, we're also told that the AOC can't pay for a guardian ad litem if it's not a DNN so you also have that child out there without 
durability. So, um, if if the and the, the the bottom line is, I I just can do what I can do. So, um, do I, what I what I do have is I do have uh, mediation available, and I I have a local rule that if it's a non-dependency and neglect case, there's no dependency and neglect alleged. The first thing is I order mediation. Right. And mediation is resolving almost all my custody cases because when they sit down with a mediator, it generally resolves everything, shy maybe occasionally of an issue or two, which I can resolve in a short hearing. So that's resolving most all of them. And where do you get the payment for the mediators? That comes up a lot in our court. It's it's just being paid. I mean, they're resolving it and they're paying it. So. And do you ever have the parent that has the appointed, um, that, that has the retained counsel pay for a guardian ad litem? Because that's come up and well, I most assessed. of mine are resolving uh, through mediation. So um, I've not had. The, occasionally, you'll have that contested case that's like something from a TV, made-for-TV movie. Yes. That um, you know they're forum shopped. You found they've been to other counties and other courts, and they everybody has those kinds of cases. And um, there's a guardian ad litem needed, and I've appointed a guardian ad litem, and I've ordered the cost split between the parties and, because and that's what's best for the child. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, they've paid, and so, but, but I, and, and there's so many cases where you need a guardian ad litem because CASA also, their, their counsel will not allow if, unless it's dependency and neglect. And then the other piece of that, we, we see a lot of grandparents and aunts and uncles that get involved, and then the AOC will not pay for their representation, which I understand that, but if they're unable to hire and the grandparent is the person that's um, had the custody, that's also another piece of the puzzle where they have to go out and, and hire. But, um, you know, that that's also a mediation issue, hopefully, that mm-hmm. can be worked out. I think it's critical in the – because I was on the Indigent Representation Task Force that met for, what, 18 months – that it's very critical that we get, as judges, we have the affidavits filled out by count by the uh, litigants, that we assess the administrative fee, the partial indigent attorney fee, when it's appropriate. Right. And that's a not a cookie-cutter issue either. It's depend, it depends on the litigant themselves. So. so let's talk a little bit about things that are different in juvenile court than in um, circuit court or chancery court or general sessions court. So how is privacy handled differently in juvenile court versus other courts? Confidentiality. Um, welfare cases are closed courts close court hearings, um, and they need to be. The family needs to be protected from the allegations that are made um, in public. The children don't need to be targeted um, by the allegations that are made. So those proceedings are closed to the public. Um, And there is actually a, a criminal statute if a party to the proceeding releases the information to the public. Um, they can be charged. It may be a misdemeanor, I think, 11 months, 29 days. It's a Class A misdemeanor. Yeah, Class A misdemeanor. So the state's very serious about those proceedings. Juvenile proceedings are different, and um, it's kind of an odd mix of openness and and confidentiality. Uh, Technically, juvenile delinquency proceedings are open to the public. But if the child is under 14... The only parties that can access the record 
are parties with an interest, the lawyers, the litigants, the defendant himself. Nobody else can get it. You can sit in court and listen, but you can't get the record. Uh, and then the second part of the statute, if you're over 14 and you've committed a certain level of felonies, those records are public. Um, so it's a mishmash of confidentiality. Child sports public record. Child sports Child public, public record. record. That's right. Technically, custody visitation is too. So, yeah. And how many times have you told a lawyer, we don't have a jury here? That's the other thing uh, yes. is a misconception yeah. is that we don't have a jury. And sometimes lawyers will, and, I, and they have the right to certainly make a record for their appeal. But um, every now and then I'll have to remind them, you, you know, this is a, I'm your trier of fact here, and there's not a jury, especially those that are usually retained that are used to, to doing that. But there would not be a, a jury in juvenile court proceedings. That doesn't mean when it goes up on appeal that they um, wouldn't. Um, that eventually they might have some opportunity. But, but as it stands with um, with our courts, we do not have that. People seem to think it's kind of like what you see on TV and um, it's not like that. Uh, we, we don't, we, and it's it's not glamorous. It is life. It hits you right in the face. Not not, not many Perry Mason moments. No, no. <laughs> not really. Or Matlock. Yeah. So the, there are the Tennessee Rules of Juvenile Procedure, which are available for free on the website on TN Courts. But which rules do you see judges or lawyers tripping up on the most? That they've come in, they've been represented, and you're just like, mm, juvenile court doesn't work the same as civil procedure laws or criminal procedure laws. Is there a couple we can point to to sort of make sure you read the rules of juvenile procedure? I have lawyers that practice primarily in circuit court that come down and get really hung up on a lot of formal discovery, yes. which I'm not too interested in. I'll play the discovery rules, which most of our Juvenile court discovery rules just refer you back to the rules of civil procedure. Right. I mean, I'm perfectly capable of playing the game, but I'm not interested. I've got to move a lot faster. I don't have the luxury of hearing a six-week divorce trial in juvenile court. I want to find out if there's dependence and neglect. If not, move on. I want to go through Judge Ash's 15 factors of best interest in a custody case and move on. And I don't want a whole lot else. Uh, I don't have time to uh, uh, figure out how much dad's going to be on mom or mom's going to be on dad. I have my child support magistrates handle that, and that's a big part of what we do too. I have three magistrates that work every day on unmarried parents' um, child support. There's one magistrate in Knox County that does the married folks' child support. That gives you a state of family life our little nuclear family our Jetsons type family is not the norm anymore uh, so one, uh, we have a large presence in our county from the boys and girls club and 83 percent of the families they serve are non-traditional families 83 percent and that's probably uh, in our courts I can't imagine too often we see both parents. That's just that's rare. That often, yeah. Correct. A lot of times I don't see any parents. A lot of times it's grandparents. Yes. And it's rough. That's a rough thing to ask a grandparent to yeah. do. Yeah. So just to clarify too, so we talked a little bit about um, juvenile court decisions being appealed. Where are they appealed to? Every that that's the quagmire. And and, and what do you do when a lawyer comes in and 
has their notice of appeal and it's going to the wrong court and the clerk comes and goes this is this is the wrong place that's what we're looking at uh, well, uh, no 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 uh, it, it, I mean it's it's you know but termination of parental rights goes up to the court of appeals and and I think that's obvious and as does unmarried parent visitation as does child support but dependency and neglect basically custody or dependency and neglect cases through DCS or even if there's a finding of severe abuse they have um, if we make that finding they can appeal that decision those go to circuit court uh, why uh, you know who determines that it, it's difficult and you pretty if you're going to be a, an attorney practicing in juvenile court it is a it, it, if you're not up on um, the rules, and they are so different from any other courts, you you have to really know what you're doing when you walk in the door because they always say we speak our own language. Everything has a CFTM, TCM. Every, everything has an initial, and, and we speak in a different language, and we also have a whole lot of uh, different rules. And um, if you don't know those things when you're coming in, it's a, it's it's not a it's not a quick learn because it's taken us um, a long time sitting here to get to the point where we're able to um, you know work through those issues and I think uh, experience is the is the one thing you cannot substitute so um, attorneys just need to look at those rules before they start appealing and going to the wrong it's, courts. It's not really that hard. Title thirty six goes to the Court of Appeals, straight from juvenile court. Right. A magistrate can't hear a case and it go to the Court of Appeals. It requires intervention by the elected judge. So that's Title 36. Title 37, if you have magistrates, if you're a bigger county, we could go magistrate to judge to a circuit court level to the Court of Appeals. And that's the breakdown in the statute. And I think that at least one of those steps in Title 37 is unnecessary. I don't think I should be rehearing a case where a magistrate with 30 years of experience who's also a lawyer, I don't think I should have to rehear it before it goes to circuit court. That's getting three bites of the apple before you have an appeal. I'd like to see that change. I don't know. that. And one of the problems we have with that law, uh, abuse and neglect and delinquency cases going to circuit, when they go up on appeal and the opinion comes back, we don't get the opinion. The circuit court does. So we're not getting direction from the appellate court on our child support welfare cases and our delinquency cases. And that's my frustration. I would like to get more guidance on certain issues. Um, for instance, in a transfer hearing, a transfer hearing is not appealable. You can only appeal a transfer hearing by preserving the constitutionality after conviction so you have to go to criminal court be convicted as an adult and then take your appeal rarely happens rarely, rarely happens. happens and i think the one thing that if we leave with anything other than uh, people in maybe learning and being enlightened by juvenile court is this that as juvenile court judges the decisions and this is from the words of judge walter baker harris the decisions that we make every day could affect a child's life forever and we can't have a bad day because um, that child um, could come back later and and explain to you 
what that decision that you made did to them. So I take that very seriously. I think that's the, one of the most important things a juvenile court judge needs to know is that we have to go in every day fresh and ready because every child deserves a, a, a trier of fact and someone who'll listen because if we don't do the right thing, uh, we're not dealing with um, we're dealing with children and children's lives, and I think that's where a juvenile court is the most important court in the in the in the court system, and that's that's uh, spoken from the heart. Thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of Tennessee Court Talk. Thank you. Thank you.